All right, turn please in, uh, to your Bibles in Psalm, to Psalm 39. Psalm 39 and starting in verse 1. Psalm 39 starting in verse 1. And this is God's word. Psalm 39 verse 1. I'll start with a little superscription there. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. Verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for his sin, You consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, people will often say, uh, oh, you preacher types. Oh, you preacher types. I, I don't know how you do it. Uh, you, you, you see so much. Uh, and uh, it's true. We, we, we do see a lot. We tend to be invited into people's most intimate experiences. That's true. Um, and many of those experiences have to do with trauma deep places in people's lives. If uh, we're not near the deathbed, we're pondering the deathbed. You know why? Because all of the flock, all of you, it awaits. Life is a span and it awaits you all. And so we are in the business of pondering uh, deep things, eternal things, things that carry a lot of weight. But friends, that said, yeah, clergy sees a lot. But it's a ministry of all believers, isn't it? In other words, all of the redeemed are responsible for all of the redeemed. And all you have to do is hang out for a few decades on this earth and you are intimately brought into places of trauma, aren't you? Because you're believers and God uses you as a means of grace in other people's lives like he uses a vocational clergyman. He uses the ministry of all believers. And so you're pulled into deep situations too. You walk alongside in, in deep uh, traumatic scenarios as well. 
And what I'm saying is, uh, all you've got to do is observe the world as a Christian, and it's either observed, trauma is, or uh, personally felt. So all that to say, in this psalm in front of us, we see trauma. We see a man in trauma. We see angst. And the Bible is not afraid to show us that. In fact, a word to the skeptic. Um, if you were going to make up a religion and uh, try to get people to buy into your little religion that you're trying to make all over the world, you know what? This is really bad marketing. Uh, this is not the kind of stuff you make up if it's fake. Uh, you make up fancy stuff and put it in a glossy brochure. You don't say this kind of hard stuff, but the Bible has no problem laying that out for us. It has no problem letting us examine someone whose soul is in inner turmoil. And so let's take, go to our uh, main idea here. The main idea is that God perfectly hurts and perfectly heals. And the way I've worded that may surprise you a little bit because you were tracking with me but going, oh, yeah, well, yes, yeah, so, yeah, there's a lot of pain all over the world and uh, there's trauma, we've seen trauma, yeah, I, we get that, Jim, uh, but then I have to go and throw God into the whole thing. Now, why did I do that? Well, uh, that's what the, the passage is doing. Uh, let's look at it together. Uh, I've got four points. Uh, it's clearly broken down into four uh, ideas here, and the first one is silence in the storm. Look at verse 1. The psalmist says, um, David says, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. And uh, at first glance, right away, uh, uh, you know, kind-spirited preacher goes, oh, yes, brethren, the tongue is a fire. That's right. The tongue is a fire, and we need to control our tongues, and that's our message today. Well, listen, um, if I were handling James 3, and I was preaching about the tongue, and it's a, a, a fire and a world of iniquity, we need to guard our tongue and bridle our tongue and so on. If I were preaching James 3, I might turn to this passage and cite it as a support for that. But you know what? I wouldn't preach this passage and say, oh yeah, it's just like James 3. Because it's not. That's not what this is saying here. Um, if we slow down, we see some recurring themes. We, we look at, the, you know, I've already mentioned the anguish in verses one and two. There's, a, there's kind of a recurring theme that, that, that parallels chapter 38. For instance, if you look at, um, oh, verse eight of 38, uh, it says, I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult in my, uh, of my heart. This is the same David writing. Um, we have other parallels, too, that I'll, I'll show you. If you look at verse 2 of our passage, he says, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. Uh, my distress grew worse. I was mute and silent. But if you look at um, uh, chapter 38, verse uh, 13, I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Um, you also have these words, uh, too. Um, look at verse um, 11 of our passage of, of chapter 39. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin. Talks about rebukes. Verse 10, remove your stroke from me, uh, your, your blows, your wound, and so on. Um, in verse, um, yeah, yeah, verse 2 of chapter 38, your, your arrows have sunk into me, your hand has come down to me. Uh, verse 11, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. Uh, you, you've got these recurring themes, and what I'm saying to you is that verse uh, chapter 38 and 39 are cut out of the same bolt of cloth. Um, we're, we're invited by the placement of them to kind of make some parallels. And 
ultimately, who's responsible? Well, uh, you look at our passage, it says in verse 9, um, I'm mute, I don't open my mouth, it is you who have done it. That's where we get the God thing. Uh, he, the psalmist is calling out God. He's saying, you're the one doing it. In verse 11 of our passage, you discipline a man, you rebuke, you consume. God is doing a thing. So now we get a little bit of context. It's not just that we can pluck something out of context and say, well, we ought to guard our tongues. Let's have a, a, a you know, 30-minute message about how we should be nice to our spouses. We should, but that's not what this is teaching. All right, second, um, we see that it's broken into four sections. Uh, verses 1 through 3 is a section, uh, 4 through 6 is a section, 7 through 11, and then 12 and 13 is a section. And uh, they're not detached. It's the same man groaning before the Lord who's dealing with him in rebuke and discipline. So let's look at it together. Verse 1 again of our passage. I said, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. Uh, I'll guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. Now, there's, there's such a fusion of things happening here, but the first one, I think, is, is very noble. Um, he's saying in verse 1, I'm guarding my tongue, I, I'm, I, I don't wanna, I'm guarding my ways uh, that I might not sin. He doesn't want to sin. And, uh, you know, in verse 1, we've got the word muzzle. Some of your translations, if you have a King James Version or a New American Standard, you've got the word bridle, and bridle my tongue, and that's a perfectly reasonable... Uh, uh, rendering of that, you know, controlling the tongue, but really the stronger meaning is muzzle. The stronger meaning is not so much controlling the tongue and saying the right thing. The, the, the greater meaning here is shut up. That's the greater meaning. I am, don't dare say a thing. And there's a reason for that here. And the reason has to do with the rest of verse 1. Uh, I'll guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. Now, what was the issue at hand? Why is he guarding his tongue? Why is he afraid of the wicked in his presence and what they may say? And you're probably thinking, we're Bathsheba. Well, don't forget about Bathsheba. I haven't, but point to it. Does it, does it tell us? It does not tell us. We can only speculate. It might be Bathsheba and so on. We don't know. What we do know is that this man, David, was a believer in Yahweh, same God we pray to. We do know that this man was full of inner turmoil. We do know that this man feared the repercussions by hostile onlookers. And he likely guarded his mouth in silence because of the public unveiling of his struggles would have been, uh, would have drawn ridicule probably for himself, but I think more nobly, uh, he was worried about ridicule, uh, disgrace being cast against his God. Um, that's what's implied by not wanting to sin. That's always what's implied by not wanting to sin. I don't want to sin. Well, I don't want to disobey God. I don't want to cast derision toward his name. I don't want to dishonor him. Now, listen to this uh, internal tragic description. He says in verse 2, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. All right? That doesn't mean he broke his silence. He, he, does, he doesn't want to cast ridicule, let it, let it roll on him or roll up toward God. He, he holds his tongue, but he says, I held my peace to no avail. My distress grew worse. So his internal struggle deepens, friends. And he even says, my heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned. 
That's trauma, ladies and gentlemen. That's internal, soulful, spiritual entanglement. And you know, that word mused is, it, it's not a word we use all the time, right? Uh, well, uh, how was, uh, how was, did you see my report, Steve? Yes, I mused over it. I mean, we're, it's not like we're in a Shakespeare play, right? Uh, but, but we have understood the term muse, right? I mean, if someone's, if an artist has a muse, I write songs, guess who my muse is? Ultimately God. He's my muse. Secondarily, that lady over there. She makes me, I don't know, feel funky and creative and stuff, you know? I mean, she's this, this underlying reverberating thing, you know? So I got, I understand, you know what, you know what a muse is, an inspiration. But, um, so that's a strange word, mused. But you know what's not a strange word? Amused. Is that a weird word? Oh, that was amusing. Ha 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 ha. I was so amused. Well, muse means to ponder over. Ah, muse means not ponder. That's why we go to a movie and it's amusement. That's why you go to an amusement park because it's a little break from your troubles and you take a little, it's like a little mental getaway. It's amusement. Well, what this guy's doing is musing. Not amused. He's musing. He's deeply pondering things. And friends, um, here's an application for your life. I've got a couple of questions for you. As I read this psalm, and as we're exploring this together, my question to you is this. Does this Christian person, discerning Christian person, does this read like a man of faith? Does it? It does, doesn't it? He's a struggling man of faith. He's a hurting man of faith, but he's crying out to his God. He, 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 he cares about holy things. He's grappling with righteousness. Reads like a man of faith, doesn't it? Yes. All right, I got another question for you. Does it read like a man who's in a terrible spiritual struggle? Yes, it does. It reads like a man of faith. It also reads like a man who's in a terrible spiritual struggle. And the application to your life is this. That you do struggle is often an indication of the existence of faith and spiritual life. And uh, the Bible's not afraid to put those things side by side. It's not a shame to do that. It doesn't say, oh, well, we've got a lovely Jesus brochure. And here are all the wonderful things that you can have. Uh, don't you want eternal life? It's like Punta Cana. Don't you want eternal life? Oh, come on in. We got a lot of good things to offer. The Bible, it, the gospel's beautiful. There's relief for the, there's relief for the hurting soul. There's forgiveness of sins in the finished and accomplished work of Jesus. There is. But man, the Bible does not shy away from painting the rigors of life. And for that, we should be encouraged that faith and struggle can be in the same person and indeed are in every person. All right, our second point. Reasoning in confusion. Look at verse three, uh, the, the end of verse three, the last line. Then I spoke with my tongue. All right, so what's, who's he talking to? Oh, it tells us. Oh, Lord. Now, he's talking, but he's talking to God. He says, oh, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreaths. You know what a handbreath is? That. That's my handbreath. And so here's my life. There's a handbreath. There's a handbreath. There's another one, another one. Just a few handbreaths. And it's over. It's fleeting. 
uh, my lifetime is as nothing before you. That doesn't mean it's meaningless. That doesn't mean that God made us and spun us out into space and he's this distant, impersonal God and our lives are just unfolding in chaos. No, it means that compared to who God is, his vastness, his immensity, his eternality, what are we? We're just a, it's over. We're just a blink and it's over. He says, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes out about, about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Now let's stop there just real quickly. Why, oh why, does the psalmist go right from a depiction of a man burning with inward terror, deep, deep pain, all of a sudden to someone who wants to know how short his lifespan is? Isn't that interesting? Uh, the, the Holy Spirit, ultimately the scripture writer, shows us this guy who's struggling. He can't speak for fear of repercussion. And when he does collect himself, he goes to God and he says, God, I mean, what would you pray for? Oh, God, give me some relief. Or, oh, God, uh, help me. Or, oh, God, show me some wisdom. Or, make my path straight. Or, uh, give us travel mercies. Or whatever people pray. Bless this food to our bodies. Whatever you pray. Um, what would you pray? Would you pray, oh God, if I were going to think of one thing to pray in this dark, hard moment, show me how short my life is. And he says it over and over and over again. Why would he do that? Well, um, I got an application for you. Application is um, in verse 6, the end of it, where we stopped. He says, um, man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Isn't that true? You work your whole life and there's hustle, bustle, and you try to accumulate things and you try to build up a reputation and you try to build up a support system for when you're aging and you try to put your kids through school and give them everything they need. You build up and build up and build up and when it's over, who the heck knows going to, you know, what do you think your irresponsible kid's going to do with everything? What do you think their irresponsible kid's going to do? What do you think your irresponsible grandchild's going to do? You know, friends, um, I'm going to save it for the end. <laughs> save it for the end. Uh, but basically what we see here is a continuation of what's been previously said. You've got layer upon layer of the brevity of human life and how storing up things, that's, that's all a part of it, okay? So I don't want to, I don't want to force my meaning into this last line. It's basically he's saying life is short, life is short, life is short, life is short. You save up all your stuff and life is short. Same stream of thought, okay? Don't want to take it out of context, but I will say this. We do heap up wealth. And uh, if we're going to make a conclusion in the context of the whole of Scripture, I mean, doesn't it teach us that all kinds of things can be wealth? I mean, things that protect our reputation, methods that we have for dealing with our situations in life, uh, we accumulate those things and their ways of controlling and ways of feeling in charge and so on. They're all for naught, ladies and gentlemen. So isn't it interesting, from a comforting perspective, to, to apply this to your life, isn't it interesting that as a Christian, you're sitting there and you're in concurrence with what's being explained? On the one hand, you know how fleeting life is. In, this, in the same thought, however, you compare it to who God is, his vastness, his nature, and isn't it a strange comfort to 
reflect about on how, how fleeting your life is? This God cares about you. Um, he, he perfectly hurts and perfectly heals. He's a personal God. He's not just from afar. He's immersed in your lives. Every detail, every motive, every notion, every fear, every little quirk, every little thing that you don't dare tell another person, he knows about and he's interested in. There's a comfort in, in saying, God, I'm in turmoil and my life is fleeting before you. It's, a, it's like an inverted way. It's like a negative photograph way of saying, you are all sufficient and you care about me. That's application number one. You want a light application? That's kind of heavy stuff here. You want a light application? Here's a light application. Life is a mist. So relax a little bit. You're going to be okay. God's going to take care of you, friend. He's going to take care of you. All right. Our third point, silence in submission. So we're back to silence. He's not talking anymore. He says, uh, look, look at verse 7 and 8. Oh, he's talking, but he's going to talk about not talking. Verse 7, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressors. Do not make as transgressions, do not make me the scorn of the fool. Now, that's got a, a word of hope in it, right? You, it's, it's God as defender, you know, deliver me, be my defender. Um, uh, he puts his faith squarely on God's deliverance alone. There's, there's a word of hope there, right? And it's a nice picture. Uh, it's encouraging, isn't it? Lord, my hope is in you. I wait for you. I wait for your deliverance. Ah, there's finally, there's some relief when we come to this part of the psalm. But wait. Verse 9, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. You know, that's, that's a different kind of silence than the beginning. At the beginning, he was fearful of scornful derision. Here he's saying, I don't open my mouth. And I think what he's basically saying is, you've done this thing, and it's not my place to question it. And... um it's not my place to bring a bunch of excuses. Oh, but God, didn't you see how I did this? Oh, but God, uh, you got to give me credit for such and such. Oh, but God, uh, that wasn't really my fault. It was partially someone else's fault. It was partially my fault. But there's no reasoning going on. He's just silent. He's saying, you are just, you have the rights, you see it all, and I am yielding to you. I mean, it's really just this sense of submission on the part of this psalmist. You know, folks, sometimes people say, well, you know, there's bad weather, or there's a storm or something like that, and they'll say, well, God had nothing to do with that. God had, yeah, that, that storm came, but you can know that God had nothing to do with that. Really? Flip ahead, if you would, to Psalm 135. Just flip ahead. Uh, not hard to find it. Psalm 135, verse 6. It says this, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. That's everything. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. And so there's no confusion. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. God gets the credit, ladies and gentlemen. Don't take that away from him. Well, 
Satan made the wind blow. Really? You're going to take creative power away from God when it so specifically says he's got all of it? It comes from his storehouses. What I'm saying to you is internal storms are the same way. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. God, it passed through your hands. Now get this description. Verse 10. Remove your stroke from me. Now that word stroke, uh, who has a different word than stroke? What do you have? Scourge. What is it? Plague. Plague. All right. Well, it's the same word used in um, verse 11 of chapter 38. Look at it. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. Do you have plague there too, Steve? Wounds. See, you see, the translators are going, oh, but the idea is a wound, an open wound, a blow, a plague, a sore, a scourge, a stripe. That's the idea. An infliction. That's the idea. And what the psalmist is saying here is remove your stroke from me. It's God's stroke. He's saying, you brought this into my life. He's giving God the credit. And he's saying, I'm spent. I'm worn out by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, listen, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. We're back to that again. Now, folks, what are we to see in all this? It's, it's, it's exhausting to read it. You go, wow, that is some heavy-duty stuff. But let's break it down. What do we see about this guy in this section on this point? We see a man who is waiting on the Lord, verse 7. We see a man who's hoping in the Lord, verse 7. We see a man who's waiting on God's deliverance, verse 8. We see a guy uh, who won't speak a word of self-defense, but rests in who God is. We uh, see a guy who um, trusts in the God who cares about fleeting lives. Application um, for your life. That's how you do it. You know, when you're in turmoil, when you don't know where to turn, when you can barely put a word on your tongue, you be this guy. You wait on the Lord. You hope in the Lord. You pray for his deliverance. You don't try to argue with him and, and, uh, and, and bolster yourself, but you, you rest. You say, you know what, Lord? It's all by your hand. And by the way, built into it is not just, oh, it's all passed through your sovereign hand, Lord. Ugh. Don't you know there's a good God behind it? I mean, there's a resting in this God too. A resting that says, you know what, Lord? You're just. Your, your, everything you do is good and right and full of wisdom. Everything you're working in my life is for my good. Uh, you, you have plans and those plans are to an expected end. You know those plans. They're good plans, plans to prosper me. That it's, it's throwing yourself at this God. That's how you do it. Our last point. Uh, petitioning in reliance. Now I love these last uh, verses because it's almost like we get to see a person um, step over the line of faith. It's almost like, you know, when you, when you, when you trust God in some matter, a transaction takes place in your heart, doesn't it? When you trust God, when you really trust Him, it's like, okay, there's the line. And if I'm going to trust God, I'm going to go, okay, God, here you go. I'm stepping over it. I'm over it. I'm giving it to you. 
There's a line you move over in your heart, and it, I think that we get to see that kind of portrayed here for us. Look at verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. Now, what comes next is kind of hard to grasp at first, but it's beautiful. He says, I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my father's. And of course, you know, Alabama preacher somewhere goes, oh, there was no room at the inn. Is there room in your heart for Jesus? That is a misuse of the passage. <laughs> what he's saying, I'm a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. There's a very specific idea going on here. Flip back, if you would, to Deuteronomy. Flip left. Deuteronomy 10. 12. uh, No, Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10. And verse 17. It says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Verse 18 of Deuteronomy 10. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. No accident that that terminology is used. It's used in a very positive way. He's saying, I'm a sojourner with you, God, a guest like all my fathers, anyone who's been tended by your care has been a sojourner that you've invited in and have protected and poured out good things as gifts. Ah, that's a relief of heart, isn't it? And then there's one last spin that uh, puts another little strange damper on it. Verse 13, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Application for your life, friends. Just as the Bible is not hesitant to show us tensions that exist, tensions between Christ's first coming and his second coming, and we live within the attention of the already and the not yet. The Bible's not afraid to show that to us. The Bible's not afraid to show us key biblical figures who struggle with faith and, uh, and peace, like David here. Um, the Bible's not afraid to show us a tension between a God who perfectly hurts and perfectly heals. He's in the business of making us more like Jesus Christ. That hurts. But he's in the business of healing us and making us more like Jesus Christ. And that's, that's calming and soothing and refreshing. And so the Bible's also not shy about portraying someone who fears God here, yet longs to be pulled close in his perfect love. He says, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and no more. And then he's right before that, he's like, hear my prayer. I mean, he's conflicted. Uh, isn't that you sometimes? It's okay. All right, last things. Um, one of the deeper truths about this passage is that your life and your struggles matter. Your life is a fleeting breath. And um, you won't you won't be here very long. You know, um, Tammy and I were leaving Babalu's the other night. And uh, who's been to Babalu's? Okay, well, you know, wow, that side of the room is like the party side. Sorry. Um, if you've been to Babalu's, uh, it's loud. 
Okay, it's on, it's on Overton Square and it, it's loud. It's hustle bustle. And I mean, there's beepers and people waiting. And if you go, you know, a little bit too late, there's an hour and a half wait outside. It's just hustle bustle. And they're showing I Love Lucy on the wall. And it's real loud in there. And just, just high energy kind of a eatery, high energy. And as we were leaving, we were walking out the door. I, I had one of those kind of preacherly surreal, or maybe it was the LSD from college, but uh, I had one of these surreal kind of things where people are streaming past me and it's so hustle bustle. And I was looking at them and I was thinking, wow. It was like I was just going, man, a hundred years from now, you're not going to be here. And neither will you, and neither will you, and none of you will. I almost wanted to stop everybody and say, hey, Everyone in Babalu's right now. Hey guys, can I have your attention? Please, guys. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Listen. Hey, I'll tell you what. Stay, stay quiet. Let me go out the door too. Hey everybody on over at the square. Hey all you people out there. Hey, stop the traffic and all the quiet. Okay. I got your attention. Okay. Great. I just want to go. A hundred years from now, not one of you will be on this earth and your name will be remembered no more. Well, that's a reality, my friends. Life is a mist. But here's the great comfort. And by the way, I, I suggest you think about that a few times this week. When you're in your office uh, daydreaming, look around the room and go, a hundred years from now, they'll all be gone and their names will be remembered no more. Moms, when you're in the carpool line and you look at the schoolyard at all those little kids, think to yourself, a hundred years from now, they will be gone and their names will be remembered no more. Life is fleeting, friends. But the good news for you is it matters. Your life matters. Your struggles matter. They're real, yes. They're painful, yes. But they're dignified. They matter because this God who is above all of them and greater than all of them has decided to intrude into human history and save you via his son. And so everything that happens in your life is important. Everything that happens in your life is this God who cares about you and has broken into your existence and pulls you toward him and makes you more like Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing in this gospel equation, my friends. And he does it in perfect justice, perfect wisdom, perfect tenderness, perfect compassion, perfect care. He perfectly hurts you and he perfectly heals you. Father, these are profound and even wonderful thoughts. They're frightening thoughts too, though. And my prayer is that I would not have stepped over the bounds either way, but that, that it would be faithfully presented to these precious souls, Lord. So show us what is true and help us embrace that truth. But in all this, Lord, might we see that you're beautiful. Might we see that in all your dealings, you're good all the time. You care all the time. Our lives matter because you have taken sinners from the dust, cleaned them, called them sons and daughters, and the work you started, you'll surely complete, and our day of rest will come. We're thankful in Jesus' name. Thanks, you guys.